0: What I want to remind us all of, and as I pray us into this morning, is if Mother's Day to you is just loss, it's remembering that, that Jesus is near, um, that, that you're his. Um, and if Mother's Day is phenomenal and it's in a good season, that you still remember Jesus is better than my best days of motherhood, that he's still better than that. Uh, And if you feel fracture, brokenness, uh, grew up without a mother, or just fractured family lines, you remember that, man, praise God, Jesus redeems, Jesus makes new, Jesus restores. Uh, That Jesus himself came from a silly family line uh, filled with misfits and fracture and folly. Uh, and he died and gave his life and rose to actually give us new grace with new generations uh, that follow him and are reconciled to God through him. And so uh, we're thankful regardless of who we are um, as we come in this place for what Jesus has done. And so I want, I want all of us, whether we're dads, moms, single, empty nesters, we, we should always just say, man, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm his, he's mine. That's where we're always finding our worth. We've got to be so careful we don't creep into other lanes for that. Uh, those are false gods and functional saviors that will always disappoint us. Uh, so let's thank God for, for Jesus, because when we look at the Bible, and it's going to point us to Jesus always, and that's who we need to be reminded of. We, we need to be told and taught on Mother's Day not how to be a better mother, or what God thinks of mothers, but the Savior that we have. Amen? All right, so let, let's go to him and ask God to do just that. Father, thank you first that, that uh, just for the moms that are here, whether they have uh, children, whether they are someone else's functional mother, whether they are a stepmother, whether they are... Um, adoptive as a mother, uh, God, we are thankful for the ways that they are participating in that way. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up women that love you and love your name and love your fame. God, that teach others the ways of God, that teach their families the ways of God in Jesus Christ. I pray you'd encourage those this morning that need encouragement. I pray that you would uplift those that need um, just burdens lifted. I pray you'd continue to sustain those um, who are just every day doing things where they might get no thanks or no congratulations. Remind them that you see them and that their worth is in that they are yours. Uh, and God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the only perfect thing you've given us outside of your son, Jesus. And we're thankful that it perfects us as we read it, how it works like a mirror. And I pray that you do that as we look at Habakkuk, Lord, a, a book that helps us understand how to face troubled times, how to live among evil days how to understand your character in ways amidst of what we might see and observe. Encourage us, grow our faith today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be in. If you have your Bible, go to Habakkuk. That is, in case you're curious or wondering what, where is Habakkuk near the end of your Old Testament, uh, go to the end of your Old Testament, flip back just a, a couple books, and then uh, you'll be in Habakkuk. And then the other thing I want to say is, um, if you don't have a Bible, please take Bibles... Thank you for taking Bibles um, and and keeping them as, as our gift. We keep having to replenish those. So that's a good sign. Uh, even if you're stealing them, praise God. We'd rather you love that you're stealing Bibles. I mean, we we actually had that uh, when we were at the hotel. Uh, we actually had. I was like, man, that's great. Who cares? Who cares who they give them to? Even if they sell them. I mean, they're they're reading the Bible. I mean, is that really bad? So uh, praise God that we that we have this uh, for you. And if you don't have a Bible, verse will be on the screen. Here's we are uh, in Habakkuk. Here's what you're gonna uh, see this morning. It, it's been a book basically. about... How do we face troubled times? How do we how do we view uh, lives where there seems like evil, injustice, sin, wickedness? It seems like God is not acting. It might seem like God is not involved. How do we observe those things, understanding who He is? And we've been learning that we don't really seek to ever change who God is, but we seek to understand who God is. And so, so our answers fundamentally and most fully come from us understanding God, getting to know God. Last week we saw that the the goal of God is that we would have God and know God. And so as we as As we sit in his character, sit in his perfections, it would actually begin to conform us and direct us in the ways that he would want us to live. And so it started out with uh, Habakkuk's first prayer, just being honest, being human, uh, saying, God, where are you? There's injustice. You said salvation's coming out of us as a people to the nations. Seems like you're not active, you're not involving yourself, you're not doing anything. And God shows up and says, hey, uh, it's just going to get worse Right? He doesn't give him an answer. He gives him a response. Um, and he says, but I'm going to do something through this that you can't even understand. My, I'm unlimited in my, in my view and knowledge, and you're limited in your view and knowledge. And then Habakkuk comes back and says, um, God, I know these things to be true about you. I know this to be true about your character and your ways and, and the ways that you work and, and your heart and your directives towards those that you've made. But I'm still struggling here. And we saw that he's finding an epicenter, a place to find refuge amidst the trials of life and troubled times in who God is. And um, God's going to respond again um, this morning. And I just want to actually read these five texts because I want you to see um, this book hinges on verse four uh, of this particular uh, section of scripture. And really, um, this series is going to turn and hinge on this in verse four. So uh, here is what God answers Habakkuk as he goes up to his watch post. Super important. Remember last week, he's waiting on the Lord at this point, goes into his watch post, says, I need a new perspective. Um, I can't see things the ways that God sees them, so I need a a different place, a different height. Uh, So he's waiting to hear from God and get, get a different perspective. And here's what God says to him. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. And then verse 4, behold his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Okay, what, what you're going to see is you're going to see verse 4 being the door hinge of the book of Habakkuk. You're also going to see it being the, being the hinge of the sermon this morning. So, so here, here's what we're actually going to see. Last week we ended with him being in the watchtower getting God's perspective. He's waiting on the Lord. But more profoundly this morning we're going to learn what it means to wait on the Lord or what it means to live by faith. Uh, what does that really mean? Now here's why we need to understand that. Is it's so cliche. I mean most of us say, um, yeah, we need to live by faith. We don't even know what that means. We don't even have a clue. We're like, yeah, the righteous live by faith, and we're just quoting texts. And we've never let the well of that text dive deep into our souls and change and transform us based upon what it's actually saying. And so, um, as we see that waiting on the Lord is not a passive thing; it's an active thing. Um, It's very aggressive. It's very forthright. It's going to the watchpost. It's getting into a place to see God's perspective. It is absolutely active, not just passive. And so spiritually speaking, that's going to mean we don't simply look at our problems, but we put them together as the Bible says we should and how we should see them. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I don't often do this. Um, we're going to look at what it means to live by faith. I'm going to give you four. Uh, every so often, Holy Spirit, like once every four months, gives me a nice application for me where I give you four points. They're all going to start with P. Love that? Holy Spirit was super kind to you, okay, this week, all right? So I'll start with P, four points. What does it mean to live by faith? Going to walk right through this text and see the first one is to live by faith means fundamentally to live patiently, uh, to live with a heart of patience. Verse two, here's what God says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. I love it. God doesn't say, Hey, I'm going to fulfill what I say, so so I'm a promise keeper. I'm a covenant keeper. I don't I don't say things, then you don't wonder if it's going to come to pass. I I speak, and things happen. I spoke, and creation just appeared out of nothing, right? So so I'm a God who keeps His promises. But what, what I love here is He doesn't say, "Hey hey, write it on a sticky note," right? Or write it on loose leaf. No, He goes chisel that sucker in stone. Right? When I say something, I mean what I say. You're going to need to remember this. You know, you know why this is so awesome from God? He, he never wants to hide his promises. You ever thought about that? Like he, he never changes his ways. Like He wants you to know what he says, and he wants you to be sure of what he says. That's, that's the God that we serve. This, this is a lot of, off the heels of last week. He has no intention of changing his promises. He always wants us to be reminded of what he has said and who he is. The problem arises in our desire to have instantaneous results and answers, right? James 4, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We want instantaneous intimacy. We want that means I open up my Bible for five minutes and I turned into the greatest theologian of the world, right? And I know how to exegete every scripture and handle all of life's problems. No, it's cultivated intimacy. It's progressive. It's ongoing. It's patient. You see this throughout the scriptures, So God says here, it'll take some time, but don't you think for a second I've failed on what I will do. Wait for it. You know, the Hebrew word here simply means to be patient when he says wait. So if you're in a doctor's office, right, your name's not being called. Instead of blowing up and leaving, you wait for your name to be called. You're patient. It's coming. Your name's coming. Might be hard. In the same way we're patient instead of giving up and blowing up, we're patient in our circumstances. And the encouragement is Habakkuk's showing us and God is showing us that God always gives a response. Always gives a response. This has been a continual theme as well, but he always gives a response, and it may not be what you're wanting, but it will be what you're needing. Right? And God will say it's not in my it's not in your time, it's in my time, so trust me in the meantime. Right, that's what God is constantly saying to us as His children. We can trust Him. I was thinking about this beautiful imagery of um, if if it's dark, Jackson, our almost five year old uh, gets strangely fearful, because I'm not afraid. So I'm like, why does he have fearful genes in him? That's, that's, that was, let's spank that out of him, okay? Let's, let's figure that out. So, so why does he have that? But he always says, hey, Daddy, come here. Same tones. Every time I hear that, i just sat down. It's, it's the night. I'm ready. I'm at ease. And then, Daddy, come here. So like, I, I walk in. And, but here's the truth about Jackson. Like If he doesn't understand or he can't see, if he just has Dad's hand and hears what Dad says, he's okay. It's not that he understands everything. It's that his father's with him that his father is saying it. It's the heart behind who's saying these things. Um, that's how we should be as God's children, man. I've got dad's hand. Like, I'll be patient. I'll wait for it. I can't see it. I don't understand it, but, but you're leading me, and that's what matters. I'm with dad, right? I'm with God, my father. He's the one that's the heart behind it. You know, I think the other thing, though, um, that this happens is when, when things go wrong, when trouble times happens, and we feel anger, or we feel despair, or we feel downcast or we feel like these are feelings we can't control we catch them like they're germs I can't be patient right that's just not who I am we say all these different things but but those feelings really you know where they arise they arise from an assumed position of omniscience now we study this a lot in James right James 4 he says man don't don't say you know where you're going to go tomorrow you think what's going to happen if the Lord wills you don't have omniscience there's only one who does There's only one God who rules and reigns who knows all things. And so here, the reason most of us get anxious in troubled times or uncertainty is because we assume a posture of omniscience. We believe we know with certainty what will happen, right? So so the reason I'm perplexed, the reason I'm fearful, the reason I'm bothered is because X, Y, Z has not happened or it should happen. And, And listen, can I encourage you, friends, to lay down your burden of assumed omniscience? You need to be a much freer man or woman if you would live under the omniscience of God. And trusting that he knows and he sees all. Fear and anxiety come from a certainty that we do know. And this is what Habakkuk has been showing us is our limitations, right? So so unless we're coming from a place of I'm limited in knowledge, you know your anxiety and fear will only grow and be bolstered. And this follows the second thing which he shows us is to live by faith is not just patiently but with perspective. To live by faith means live perspectively. I don't even know if that's a word. I added the ly's so they sound good. Okay, so live perspectively. We look at God's perspective as opposed to ours. Look at what he says. According to you, it may seem slow, but it will come exactly when it should. Listen, if we could get into our heads, I say this all the time with time, but I don't want to say it with days, right? If we get into our head, tomorrow is not just a place that God knows about, but it's a place that he already is. Think about the implications of us who are just controlled by anxiety or ruled and dominated by fear. That tomorrow's not just a place that's going to come that God's aware of. He's actually standing in tomorrow, preparing tomorrow, preparing you for tomorrow with His unbelievable providence, His unbelievable love, His unbelievable foresight, that He will actually walk you into a place He's already standing and is prepared for you to handle. I mean, we're so, we get stuck in our heads. We treat God like us. That's why we can't change God. Got to understand Him. That will bring about a lot more peace in our life. And so we have got to understand that he is already there as a loving, faithful God who prepares us for what will come. This is amazing that in his goodness he takes us through seasons of despair, seasons of darkness, all the while knowing that he's not trying to destroy you. But that in his perspective, in his unlimited knowledge, he sees tomorrow knows what it's going to bring about for you and prepares you to walk in that. And here's the truth: you and I simply don't see that. We can't see that. But God sees that. And that's where our comfort is from. Romans 8:28, classic text, right? Many of you have it on a coffee cup at home or on your wall. Praise God. Wonderful verse. Think about the verse, though. So I said, if we could, I was just talking to my brother who just planted a church down in Arlington, Virginia, a couple of months ago. We were talking about these verses, like I mentioned last week, that if we would just have meditated on the verses when we were five, six, seven years old, that we were taught, man, we would be good for our life of sanctification. Well, Romans eight twenty-eight says, "And we know that for those who love God, okay, for those who love God, not just anyone." Let's read it. Right, those who love God, all things work together for good. Now we like to define what good is. We don't have a clue what good is. God knows what good is. Praise God, He knows because He's all good and always good. And He has foresight that we don't have for those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, here's why I love this text Whose purpose? His purpose, right? So, so you and I are part of God's story that we are not the point of. Now, some of you, I know that, that ruffles your feathers. But listen, um, the reason some of us get bothered when texts bear weight on us is because you're not the point. It's all about his purpose, his story. So, so what God is doing in your life is not ultimately about you. It is for your good. But ultimately for his purposes, his glory, his fame, his renown, how he will get praise. And and that's what we're seeing right in this text. And this is one of those spots I think Western Christianity has just hijacked. As we say that you and I are the point, that you and I are the prize. No, God's the prize. We just get to reap amazing benefits in the deal. Unbelievable that he would call us into his story. That he let us participate in his works and acts. All things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But look at verse 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only are all things working together for good according to his purposes, but but as he goes about those purposes that are his, nothing will separate you from his affection towards you. So you can actually walk in his good purposes that he leads you in through, through sight you can't see. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, right? Our faith will fully be sight in glory. It won't fully be sight now. We see in part, Paul says, so we enjoy that trusting, knowing that, man, he will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. You have objective evidence in the scriptures, regardless of your circumstance, what God is doing, he has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He, he, just look at the list. Life can't separate you. Death can't separate you. Demons can't separate you. No powers can separate you. Think about what would happen if we could just meditate on the implications of this reality. That no matter what God brings into tomorrow. No matter what we think we see in injustice and sin. That God is working these things through his purpose. And he won't sever you from his hand. It's good news. He has never failed to prepare us. So to live by faith. is to live patiently, perspectively. And number three, this is most important. To live by faith is to live from a position. Look at verse four. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Um, Here's where God simply contrasts the character of the Babylonians, these people that are coming in to just wreak judgment on Judah, and he compares those who are his, supposed to be his. And there's only two kinds of people. So there's the man who pu- who's puffed up. This is the man who trusted himself. He does not trust God. He has all the solutions. God has no solutions. He has all the answers. God has no answers. Right? He knows how to work his way out of trouble. His intellect is what drives him alone. He does not need someone outside of himself. He believes that he has all that he needs to have in order to know the realities that he sees. This is why one of the first arguments from the atheistic belief system um, is one that says, if God, God is so loving, explain the world. I just want to lovingly respond man is so great, explain the world. Right? I mean, I mean we, we've been searching for answers for all generations. Listen, we keep hitting dead ends. We have no answers. Listen, evolution is not a line up of increase, it's a cul de sac we've all hopped into thinking we have answers, we have the ways out. No, faith is the way out in a person outside of us, Jesus Christ. So so we have not figured it out yet. We would all say that. We all say, oh, the next generation will be better. The next generation will be better. Then our kids will have a better life than we had. Is anything historically or presently showing that? And so we need to live by faith, he says. So he then shows there are the righteous who live by his faith. They don't trust in themselves. They trust in God. They don't trust in what they see. They trust in what he sees and what you do not see. They don't trust in what they know. They trust in the one who knows all things. That's how the righteous live. It's either pride, faith in me, or faith, trust in him. Amen? That's fundamentally what he's showing you. Pride, faith in me, faith, trust in him. Now I want to pause here just for a minute because on what it means when he says the righteous will live by his faith. The reason I want to pause is because those two words Righteous and faith are super important, and there's been a lot of damage done to those words and a lot of misunderstanding put into this. So um, the reason I say this is because, number one, faith, um, we all have faith of some kind, okay? This ain't just Christians that have faith. It's, a, it's faith in what your faith is in, right? So listen, all of us practice faith today, right? All of you are sitting in chairs, right? I don't think any of you got under the chair, started looking at the bolts, like trying to figure out if it would hold you, Right? I don't think so. I didn't see it. It Would have been awesome if you did. I mean, we would have laughed. But you came in and just assumed that you assumed our kids ministry would be safe for your kids, and it is. Don't don't worry, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. But you assumed there were no tasers back there. You assumed that there was no lashings and whippings, right? I mean, you you assumed that security's doing their job. You assumed with faith that your kids would be safe. It's not an issue of do we have faith. Your faith in you, you you believed your car would get you here this morning. Now, maybe some of you it didn't, and then you had issues. I've, I've heard those stories. But for most of you, you believed your car would get you here this morning. It would turn on. All the axles would stay put. Wheels would stay fixed. So All of us have faith. But it's a matter of what your faith is in. It's most important. It's the first thing we're going to look at. But let's do, deal with righteousness first, and then we'll get to faith. Righteousness has to be understood first because um, we know that through the entire scriptures, it's full of righteousness is impossible to be, a, be achieved to perfection by man alone. So he can't be saying, hey, those of you that have attended church enough and said your prayers and done your works and done your merits, hey, you're now intrinsically righteous. You've, you've finally made a place of perfection where you can now have faith different from others who have faith. It can't be what he's saying, because if you read the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament rolls out that we cannot, we're given the law, we realize out of the gate that we fall short, that none of us perfectly can uphold this law. Then we find the sacrificial systems rolled out, right? That's why we're going to the temple, uh, sacrificing bulls and goats and spotless lambs, because we need a sacrifice for our sin. We see how sick our sin is, so we're doing all those things. Then you get to the New Testament, and right out of the gate, you got John the Baptist coming, saying, hey, listen, repentance for forgiveness of sin is here. There's a righteousness that you can have that is not yours intrinsically. It's outside of you. It'll be credited to you. It'll be given to you. And Jesus says in all of his gospels, and Paul continues in the whole New Testament, to say you've given a righteousness that is not your righteousness. Okay, so this is good news for us. So so we're given a righteousness that is not our righteousness. That's what we have to understand in this. So I want to grab a couple texts and show you how this is the fuel to live by faith. Knowing your position before God. Romans 3.23-26. Another very familiar text. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, if we're honest, we were all doing awesome until we got to that word propitiation. Okay, so, so here's what propitiation is and here's how it sets you up for faith in The God who is just. Propitiation is is just this word that means to appease or satisfy something. So if you've been coming for some sort length of time, you're going, man, yeah, this guy talks about the wrath of God. can't believe it. He talks about judgment and sin and and hell. And wow, those are actually uh, good things for us to hear because we know that someone had to appease that. If you don't know what's against you, if you don't know what your sins deserve, you won't enjoy and celebrate the one who has taken your place as a substitute. And so we've got this Jesus who appeases wrath. He absorbs wrath that was rightly towards you and I, right? That's for another time in the, the degree of our sin, the depth of our sin. We don't even realize how serious it is, right? So he shows us how serious it is in the, in the two responses of hell and the killing of Jesus, right? I always say, if you want to know a serious sin is, just look at God's response towards it, right? So he gives us these things, but he, he appeases this wrath. He absorbs this wrath in our place for our sin is what... Paul says here, the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll tell you why this matters. Many people were crucified when Jesus was. Some people like, think it's just a gruesome act of crucifixion. You know, many people were crucified. No man absorbed the wrath of God. You know what made the cross awful? It wasn't just the nails, suffocation, the bleeding, the spitting, the vinegar, the pain, the stinging... It was that no man could have ever or has ever or will ever absorb the full wrath of God towards sin. Jesus did. That's what made the cross awful. That's what made the cross terrible from a human sense. But now because Christ does that, God does something. Now God can do something beautiful. Because wrath now has been dealt with, it's been appeased, it's been absorbed, it had to go somewhere, right? Right? It was either going to go on you and me or Jesus. So it goes on Jesus. Now he can do something. Now he can do what Paul says he can justify us. He can justify us. Now, justification, that, that's just a theological word for to be declared right before God, to be made righteous before God, for him to declare you righteous before God. So he now takes the righteous life that Jesus upheld and he sees you as the righteous life of his son Jesus and he takes your sinful life and he sees his son on the cross as all of your sin in your place as your substitute. That's what it means to be justified. Now look, notice though, This is how God makes sinful human beings acceptable to holy God. This is how he does it. And notice the verb is passive. It says are justified, not justifying. You want to know why that's important? You and I aren't doing this. You and I aren't doing this. It's been done to you with no help from you, with no asking of you, with no rights from you. This is God in his own volition, on mercy, on unconditional love saying, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you new. That's God doing it, right? This is him justifying us. We're not doing this. It's being done to us. So it's something God does, not something that we do. You can never justify yourself. You can never make yourself righteous before God. You can attend this place your whole life and walk out of here a sinner condemned, unforgiven. You can open up your Bible every single morning and be unforgiven. You can grow up in a Christian family your whole life and be unforgiven. Jesus justifies us, and there's two things that happen. One, he charges the sin of man to, to Christ, and two, he gives the righteousness of Christ to the sinful person. Amazing! It's that great exchange that happens now, now. here's why you need to understand this. It's this. It's this transaction, right? The Bible talks about. Here's how you gotta understand this. Um, so many of us have been taught, again, rightly or wrongly, justification means just as if I never sinned. Maybe some of you have heard that. Um, you know, that's not enough. Just as if I never sinned, that just takes you to zero. No one gets into heaven at zero. You need infinite righteousness. Like, the transaction's only half at that point. If justification is solely your debt's paid, your sin's forgiven, that's not enough for you and I. We need someone to actually stand and be our champion on the day of judgment who says, no, I'm the righteousness of God himself. And God says, good, you're forgiven, you're down at zero, now I'm gonna put back in your account, back in your bank, infinite riches that you must have to reign and rule and be with a God who's infinitely holy. That's awesome. That's really good news that I'm not just, my sin's not just taken, but I'm credited something too. There's debit and credit for you accountants. I come from the accountant background, right? Worked in the treasury before ministry. Debits and credits. Man, you got to have a credit after that debit. And the gospel does that for us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most breathtaking statements in the Bible. For our sake, God made him. That's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He never acted in sin. Listen, Jesus was not made a sinner. He was made sin. And God takes his upheld, perfectly obedient life, and he credits his life to our account. That's amazing. When I stand before God, He's not going to see wicked, dishonest Mike Reed. He's going to see holy, spotless, blameless, above reproach life of Jesus Christ in Mike Reed's place. That's great news. That's great news for those that will have it. Another familiar text: Ephesians two, eight, and nine. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, gift of God, not a result of works. No one can boast. The scriptures just told you and I that we've been made righteous by nothing we've done. By an act of God, grace, unmerited, through faith, belief, and even the faith to believe God gave you. So you got nothing to boast in. you got no place to stand outside of just going, God's awesome, God's good, God did it. Now, here's why all this matters. Why, Why did I go into that little kind of first grade Sunday school? Some of you are thinking... Sidebar, because our position of righteousness is the fuel for us to live by faith. Man, if you don't go back to this, if you don't remember this, if you don't recall this, this is the fuel for us to live by faith. Because what it does is it puts us in a position of total dependence and desperation on God himself. You remember how you were brought into this whole thing. His foreknowledge, his sovereignty, his authority, his goodness, his grace, his ability to see what you couldn't see. So now we don't move on to something new and go, cool, now I got it now. I got life now. Thanks, God, for giving me heaven. I'm good. No, I'm still holding on to the reins. I still got to follow you and what you say, I still have to listen to you, and this is why when those moments of doubt, discouragement, feeling as though he's left you, we go back to the God that made you righteous to give you objective evidence to strengthen your faith and remind you of his promises. This is why Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So we constantly go back to Faith, belief. Our faith is strengthened in remembering this God who declares us righteous. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous that are given righteousness, not in themselves, outside of themselves, they have no other way to live. We have nothing else to know, we have nothing else to celebrate. We have nothing else to get us through our day. That's our confidence. This is where our reliance is. And this is why, if you read the majority of the Gospels in the entire New Testament, Paul and Jesus will draw men and women's eyes to this reality constantly. You don't have a righteousness. You can't be righteous. There's one who can for you. And now live by faith. In that God who made you righteous. Because the Gospel's nothing short of we get God, right? Because here's... This is why we don't primarily live by faith to get God's stuff. We live by faith to get more of God. I don't know what your theology is like there, but this is super important. I mean, Habakkuk's a mini book of Job. That's why we're doing Habakkuk, not Job. Job's too long, right? So, we, Habakkuk, three chapters. We, we got Habakkuk, but, but think about the book of Job, right? If you're familiar with the book of Job, think about what Satan does. Satan goes to Job. And he says, hey, he's waiting on you. He's living by faith, but he's only doing it because of all the stuff he has. Look at all the stuff you've given to him. So if you take away his health, wealth, kids, all that stuff, then he'll abandon you. He just lives by faith because of what you can give, and not because he wants you, not because he loves you. He'll curse you. You get take away his stuff. And what does Job learn? Lord gives, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I live by faith. I wait on the Lord. He's my portion. Job 23, the Lord knows the way that I will take, and when he's done with me, I will come out as gold. That he knows there's a, pr- a process to his unlimited view that as I go through trial and difficulty and pain and suffering, that that lump of coal heart that he presses with the pressure of his gracious hand will come out as a diamond, purified, healthy, fortified, trusting him better than I did a week ago, knowing his character and nature more than I did a month ago, that's what he's showing us. I mean, if someone, think about this, if someone, if someone you're married to or you know, you believe they love you, but you don't realize they love you because there are certain benefits you provide for them. Let's say something happened to you so those certain benefits you provided them are stripped and the next day they just abandon you. How would you feel? You'd be furious, right? Right? I you just love me for what I could give you? Like, you didn't love me for me? Like, like you just love me for benefits? Here's what's so interesting, man. I talk to people all the time and say, yeah, I went to church, got nothing out of it. Yeah, so I just stopped going. Like, oh, yeah, I tried that thing. I tried praying, never got anything. so. So hold on a second. You do with God the very thing you'd be furious about if someone did it to you. I mean, do you see the hypocrisy in our hearts? I mean, why did you enter into this relationship with God? Because he gave you everything in his righteous life? And his death, and his resurrection, and I mean, is that really where this is stemming from? Or you thought, maybe misled, maybe falsely taught, that man, if I enter into this thing, then God's going to give me other things. I don't want him, I just want this stuff that we continually, perpetually get back to. And here's the thing, what does it mean to live by faith? It means to love God for who he is in himself. Because it's in troubled times when you're forced to have faith that our selfish, selfish, exploitative relationship with God's exposed. And God gets to ask us questions Are you in this thing to serve me or for me to serve you? And all of a sudden, your faith has changed. Your faith has grown. Your faith is strengthened, right? It shifts. When the darkness lifts, then you'll find that pressure has turned your heart to a safe place, a good place, not a wandering place. So to live by faith is to live patiently with perspective from a position and finally to live prepared. To live by faith means to live prepared. Look what he says in verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Um, he's talking about the Babylonians. He's talking about culture. Here's what, here's what, Habakkuk, here's what God does to Habakkuk. He says, uh, there's two things you can look at, culture or kingdom. And you're preparing for one of them. And you're finding your confidence in one of them. He says, when you look at a culture, you see addiction. One is a traitor. You see arrogance, self-sufficiency. You see anxiety and stress. We're never at rest. You see greed. Only wanting to profit myself by causing pain to others. Here's what's amazing. We're thousands of years removed from this, yet, yet the culture and heart that emanates from us is unchanged. So I love about the scriptures. They're timeless. We are not advanced. We're just as proud. We're just as arrogant. We're just as foolish. We're, we're just as falling into false belief that we are sufficient enough in ourselves and we do not need him. We, we are just like these. We are the ones who believe that evolution is a line going up. As I said earlier, it is not a line going up. It's a jump into a cul-de-sac that goes around and around and around and constantly searches for a way out and never finds it thinking we're making progress, when the only way out is faith. So God is saying, when you look at culture, you will grieve. When you look at the kingdom, you will have hope. The righteous will live by faith, faith in what God is doing, faith in that God is at work, faith in that God has not left, he has not abandoned, he is good. There will be final and full justice. Our faith will fully be sight. But we look at the kingdom to come, right? The church is on offense, right? Church is not on defense, Like we're never told by Jesus or anyone in the scriptures to hunker down, put your shields up, don't go anywhere. No, the the church advances, the church goes, the church's feet are always moving forward towards a king and a kingdom we know that king and kingdom is coming. We don't know when. We know it's imminent. We know it's whenever God says, but we know that God will finally and fully give justice, that he will do away with wickedness, that he will judge every deed, hidden and seen, that God is good, that God has made those who are his righteous now and desires to make more righteous now in his family through the work of his son, that God is, has not stopped working. We have confidence in that. We have faith in that. It's, so profound. I mean, light, like hope in life's not ultimately in this life; it's in the life to come. I mean, we have hope now because we have Christ, but our ultimate hope is not in what culture seems like; it's in the kingdom that will be remade and reestablished. So, really, it's important for us to know this because in often in troubled times, our default position, guys, is inactive, not active. How many of us, when life gets hard, well, we stop reading our Bible. Stop attending wor- worship on Sunday. Stop attending our growth group. Right? Stop getting in community. Stop talking to our friends that love the Lord and are strong in the Lord and can encourage us in the Lord. Does that not happen? We're prone to drift. We're prone to drift. I, mean, my, I wake up every morning, my heart's broken. I want what I don't want and I shouldn't want, and, and I need God to realign that. So, man, I mean, is it not true that in troubled times we should be preparing, not growing from inactiveness, but activeness? We should be pursuing something. I mean, I I thought about this. Think about um, living by faith is the same word as waiting on the Lord. These are two of the same things if you read them in the Hebrew. Living by faith, waiting on the Lord. Is it, people who wait tables, do they just stand around, not do anything? No, they're serving actively. They, They go do things, right? Imagine if, if a police officer was at his post and, and he just decided to become inactive because he really wouldn't get much out of it. Not much was happening. And he goes to the courtroom and the judge says, man, why did you let that happen? Why would you let that, that criminal get in there? Why would you leave your post? I I just wouldn't get anything out of it anymore. Oh, great, case dismissed. He would never say that. We go to our post, chapter 2, verse 1. We get God's perspective that gives us the heart and hope and health to live by faith, trust in him. We must constantly put ourselves around these graces from God to increase our faith. See, our faith is increased as we place ourselves rightly in those right, proper positions. Are you getting under those waterfalls of grace? Or when troubled times come, do you run away from those? Living by faith is an active faith. The pursuing faith. So, how are you preparing? How are you preparing? Um, we're prepared. We prepare because faith is not just stoically holding on to God. Like, that's not what it means to live by faith or wait on the Lord. It's not just stoically kind of, okay, until he does something or shows up, I'll move. That's not what living by faith is. It's not looking at your circumstances and being affected by your circumstances. It's looking at what God has done for you in Christ and being deeply affected by that to help you walk in your circumstances. Look at what Paul said in Romans 8. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, if anyone had a lot of problems, it's Paul. As our, our elder board met the other night, and we just walked through 2 Corinthians 11 and looked at all of the atrocities, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, left naked, homeless, no food. He had a lot of problems, but look, he got up in his watchtower. He got a new perspective. My sufferings looked huge. They looked so big until I looked at glory. Man, it looked so weighty. It looked like this was all there was until I looked at, until I looked at glory, until I looked at the kingdom, till I prepared my heart, till I got perspective, till I remembered my position with Jesus. All of a sudden, his sufferings looked different. All of a sudden, he's going, man, I'm sick. I'm sick, right? But the sickness that ultimately could kill me sin has been put to death. He's in debt. He's lost all financial resources. Man, I am in debt, but oh, I remember the debt that would have killed me eternally. My sin has been paid for. he's, He's nourished by his position before Jesus Christ so he can now see glory and prepare himself for what's coming. We need this. We need this as Christians. Paul is meditating on the glory that is coming until it penetrates his present suffering. He's seeing it. He's driving his heart there. He's asking for help. I love his letters. He asks for help from other brothers and sisters of the faith. He doesn't leave them or abandon them. So let me just close with this question. What is your faith in? And listen, if you're a Christian, this is for you too. What's your confidence really in? Allow God to do some work on your heart. It's readily revealed. If this was removed from you, would your life just fall apart? What does it mean that you live by faith? Because everyone lives by faith in someone or something. And God here only gives two types of people. Puffed up, conceited, faith is ultimately in me. I know how life should work out. I have omniscience. I have foreknowledge. I have unlimited scope. My intellect alone will help me understand how to work through troubled times. Or is your faith in the God who was there, is there, and will always be there? Is your faith in a God who's standing in your tomorrow with a loving heart who's fully just? Is is your hope in a God who does not just watch suffering but willingly entered this suffering world and suffered for you? What is your hope in? What's your confidence in? What are you relying on? What are you living by faith in? Is your confidence in your limited view of life and what you can see or is in his unlimited view and scope with a heart behind it that is fully towards you as a heart of a father that will fully prepare you and not abandon you in your tomorrow, that sees all, knows all, and will give justice in all things? If you're not a Christian, turn to him today in faith. And if you're a Christian, turn to Him today in faith. And keep turning to Him in faith because that is what will grow your assurance of things hoped for and things not seen. Hebrews 11. You keep turning to Him in faith. And the final thing I'll just say is we're going to take the supper. We take the supper every, every Sunday morning to remember, right? Here's what I want to encourage you in. Um, I know 99% of us live in the suburbs. You know what this means? Uh, tomorrow, everyone's going to ask you how you are and you're all going to say, busy. Right, some of you are going to be like, "I'm worse. I'm slammed." Right, some of you guys aren't even going to talk to me. You're so busy. Don't even look at me, man. I got this stuff to do. Don't even talk to me. We're busy. So here's the thing: uh, most of us, right, aren't going to be able to get up to a monastery for two days and meditate. Right? We have good jobs that demand our work. That's holy work. That's good for us to provide for our family and use the cultural mandate in a way that glorifies God. Absolutely, we have those things. We're going to go do those things. I'm going to go do those things tomorrow. But but here's my question. Um, where and how are you even so creating space? Here's why I say that: you know there is nothing in the scriptures that will require you to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. But you know what we'll do? We'll spend months stringing lights and arranging manger scenes. Right? You'll create space for that. But you got those are not wrong; those are great. But you know there's no scriptural mandate that will require you to remember that. You know the only thing Jesus says: "Remember until I come." Remember this, justification, imputed righteousness, propitiation, wrath was absorbed for you. My body was broken, my blood was shed. You remember this. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever move on from this. You create space to meditate on this. So how are you doing that? It's amazing when I wake up in the morning what just 15 minutes will do of quiet meditation and silence to redirect my heart. Under what's true and who God is and what he's done. We don't have hope if we don't create space. Even so, your faith is not inactive, it's active. You might be in a dark season, and I'm I'm pleading with you to to lean into the Lord and put yourself under these waterfalls of grace, that he might renew your faith and bolster your faith and strengthen your faith. Let's ask him for help. Father, will we remember this this week? Will we stop and remember what our forefathers have called meditation? Will you help us as we come to the table to remember that this is a sweet meal to us. It's a gift from Jesus. Not to make us righteous. We've already been given righteousness. Not to make us holy or give us right standing. We've already been given that finally and fully in Jesus. God, would you, who you are and what you've done in your son and what you've given us in your son, nourish us this morning. Would you help us to be people who live by faith, who trust you? And the only reason we can is because you have proven your faithfulness and your trustworthiness in the person, work, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So God, would you encourage us this morning? Would you increase our faith as we turn to you for more of that faith? Would you help us to live patient lives with your perspective, always remembering our position, being declared righteous before you through no act of our own, so that we can increasingly live a prepared life for the kingdom that is to come? Help us, Jesus.